Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello, and welcome to the final recording of talks in our Decolonising Research series. For this final episode, I'm delighted to bring to you Dr. Salma Evelina Lawrence with her talk, What Does It Mean to Do Decolonial Research? But first of all, I'd like to acknowledge that I am on the lands, the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation um, of um, New South Wales in Australia. This is where I normally live and work. Tonight I'm in Melbourne. I'm actually on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging of the First Nations peoples of Australia. And I recognize that Australia was founded on the genocide and dispossession of First Nations peoples, and that the land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So I'm going to do a short introduction to myself and then head off into my presentation. I am currently the acting co-CEO of the International Women's Development Agency in Melbourne, Australia, where I lead our decolonial work, interrogating our practices and our approach to international development with the objective of decolonizing how we work. When I'm not acting CEO, I'm the Director of Systemic Change and Partnerships, and I still have charge of the decolonial work that we do. I'm also an adjunct fellow at Macquarie University. In my scholarly life, I research decolonial theory, ethics, and epistemology, and I draw deeply on my own culture, which is a matrilineal culture in Papua New Guinea, the Milne Bay province of Papua New Guinea, and I use my own culture to frame my decolonial practice. In fact, it's my matrilineal culture, a culture that's at the opposite end of the spectrum of the masculinizing patriarchy of coloniality that shapes my decolonial practice and shaped my decolonial practice long before I became a scholar of the decolonial. So it's really exciting to see Exeter Uni and other academic institutions start to take the decolonization of research seriously. I started my PhD in 2013 and submitted in 2017, so really not that long ago. But um, my thesis was grounded in decolonial theory. I was influenced in Terralia by Anibal Quijano, Walter Mignolo, Ramon Grosfoguel, Enrico Dussel, Oyorenke Oyewumi, Linda Martin Alcoff. I hope these names are familiar to you if you are decolonial researchers. And Linda Tuyuai Smith, who is a Maori from the Pacific region. On the one hand, at the level of the institution where I did my PhD, it was a struggle to talk the decolonial and hold a decolonial space because it was just so alien at that time. It was marginally easier within my discipline of gender and cultural studies because both feminist and anthropological critical studies were an influence in this domain. And I was able to use this as a bridge into post-colonial theories and then into decolonial theory. So where you sit discipline-wise, I think will have a large um, influence on how you're able to negotiate using decolonial theory uh, and being a decolonial researcher. In the second year of my PhD, I attended a summer school in Barcelona on decolonizing knowledge and power, where I met some of the scholars that I've just named, and where I connected with a community of like-minded scholars and activists. It was really enlightening and energizing. 
And I highly recommend if you are a PhD candidate or if you're a master's student, I recommend participating in this summer school. And I'll show a slide at the end with the website name and other resources. Um, I'm going to share my understanding of decolonial research, which does touch on the, the points made by Dipti and Saskia. I want to explain some concepts that I use, um, that I will be using. I'll then talk about some principles for doing decolonial research or for the way that I do my decolonial research. And I'll talk about some of the practices that I use to support those principles. I'm going to talk for about 25 minutes. Um, I can see that it's 10 past the hour now and I will try to keep to time, but there will be time for Q&A at the end. Um, if there's time and if anybody is interested, I'll be able to share with you my own PhD research and what was decolonial about it. So the first concept that I want to talk about briefly is the concept of whiteness. Now, I deliberately use the terms of whiteness, West, Global North, Eurocentric, developed world, interchangeably. These terms often broadly refer to the same demographic, but within specific academic disciplines, they have nuanced meanings. Whiteness, for instance, is used by critical race theorists to mean a system or culture that discriminates based on race, specifically the, the perceived superiority of white people and their customs. For a detailed look at whiteness from the perspective of a white person, I recommend reading Shannon Sullivan's Revealing Whiteness, the unconscious habits of racial privilege. So like patriarchy, whiteness describes a particular set of characteristics and practices which have become institutionalized in many parts of the world, including in international development, the sector in which I work, and of course in academia. There would be no Exeter University decolonizing research festival were this not the case. The other concept that I want to share with you is um, that you will hear me mention majority world and minority world. I use minority world instead of the West or the global North, and I use majority world instead of developing or the global South. For me, this, this uh, terminology more meaningfully and accurately describes the global dem demographic majority who are located in the global South. It's also a terminology that doesn't infantilize by using the word developing or developed. I use majority world because not only is the global South a demographic majority on this planet, we are also a sociological majority. Our cultures share many things in common in contrast to minority world cultures. Across the Pacific, Africa, the Americas and Asia, we are united by an ethics of relational autonomy that underpins our diverse social, economic and epistemic systems, and which contrasts starkly with the competitive individualist ethics, growth-based economies and binary knowledge systems of the developed world or the minority world. So it's a political choice for me to use this terminology, a political choice to use the term majority world um, to, to bring into stark relief um, the situation that we all find ourselves living within at the moment, which is a global power system that is based uh, on minority world ideas. Another concept, oh, I, I wanna talk, so I've shared with you the concepts that I'm going to use, whiteness, uh, majority world, minority world. I wanna talk a little bit about coloniality and epistemic decolonization um, before I move on to principles and practices. 
So coloniality, as you would know, is a theory developed by a group of primarily Latin American thinkers, which coalesced around 1998 into the modernity coloniality matrix. A theory is a way of explaining the world, and as we all know, it can be based on evidence or not. The basic theory is that European modernity has a dark side, which is rarely, if ever, acknowledged by those working within modernity. And that dark side includes colonization, enslavement, genocide, expropriation. So it is disingenuous to highlight the advances associated with modernity without acknowledging that these advances have been made possible through coloniality, a matrix of intertwining systems and technologies of power, such as race hierarchies, gender hierarchies, and exploitation of and dominance over the natural world. The theories of modernity coloniality have gained traction across the majority world, across the global south, because one, the historical and contemporary evidence for it is overwhelming, and two, the theory describes more accurately what majority world peoples have experienced and continue to experience than do theories produced by global north theorists. The theory of coloniality is a theory that resonates across the majority world because it actually explicates the historical and contemporary experiences of majority world peoples who have experienced colonization, enslavement, genocide, racism. So coloniality scholars, Anibal Quijano and Walter Mignolo and others, generated the modernity coloniality matrix by stepping outside modernity to view modernity from an alternative perspective, the perspective of coloniality. Now, this group of scholars coined the term decoloniality to describe centering understanding of and interpretation of the social, economic, and political world from a perspective outside the Eurocentric framing of modernity. They also refer, that they being the scholars, also refer to decoloniality as epistemic decolonization. So what does this tell us about decolonial research or about doing decolonial research? And what relevance do the concepts of whiteness and majority and minority worlds have to do in decolonial research? Since decoloniality, I'm gonna to have to take a sip of water, excuse me. Since decoloniality is about epistemic decolonization, it means articulating knowledge from a subject position that is not the colonizer. In the spaces that I work in, the colonizer is synonymous with whiteness or Anglo and Eurocentrism. In other words, the minority world. Assuming that one takes a subject position that is not that of whiteness, what does that mean to knowledge creation? Let's take the concept of gender. Only in very recent times has the minority world started to recognize that gender and sexual diversity exist along a spectrum. Yet non-binary genders have always been recognized in parts of the majority world, such as in Samoa, where the term fa'afafine refers to a non-binary gender. Oyeronke Oyewumi, in her book, The Invention of Women, demonstrates how Western gender roles do not map neatly to pre-Christian roles in parts of Nigeria, providing one example in which the role of a husband, the role of a provider and a protector, can actually be fulfilled by a woman. The point is that social concepts generated from within one worldview will not necessarily translate across other worldviews. A subject position that is not whiteness opens up knowledges that have been unexplored, ignored, or deliberately marginalized. So doing decolonial research means, first of all, recognizing 
that the knowledge produced by the colonizer and through the knowledge production systems of whiteness is not universal. And secondly, it means recognizing that the knowledge produced in this system, the colonizer system, is only partial knowledge. Why is it only partial knowledge? Well, primarily because if you look at it from the perspective of logic, logically, in order to present knowledge as universal truth, it makes sense only if the entirety of the population to which that truth is said to apply has been tested against that truth and found to comply with it. With 7 billion humans on this planet, this is a feat that's never been accomplished. Researchers use sample populations to test their theories and make inferences based on these minute subsets of humanity. And we know that these sample populations are rarely truly representative of the diversity of the entire human population on this planet. So the situation that the majority world lives in is that European customs, culture, ways of being and knowing have been projected by Europeans as universal norms. But we've just seen that the gender norms of the, mi the minority world, which are projected to be universal, are not. And a cursory look at the literature on gender written by majority world scholars, such as Oyeronki Oyewumi, immediately challenges that assumption. So what I'm channeling your attention to here is that the social world looks different according to your worldview and your subject position. Knowledge that is produced by white men is only partial knowledge because it does not incorporate other subject positions. Knowledge produced by white women and white men is still only partial knowledge. We need knowledge generated from multiple different subject positions to create a picture that is holistic, that is more complete and representative of the reality of life on this planet. So the key learning here is that decolonial research and researchers treat minority world knowledge claims as merely one data point and never the only data point. The second point, and one which disrupts the colonizer's view of objective knowledge creation, the second learning is that we all carry our cultural baggage and our conscious and, and subconscious biases into all of our engagements, including research. No human is free of this since no human exists outside of the social system. Well, we see according to our own subject positions, when shown a different perspective, we might then see a different perspective, but we also might not see the different perspective, even when we are told about it and even when we're shown it. So does the fact that we cannot see a different perspective mean that it doesn't exist? Or does the fact that others can see it mean that it does exist and we simply don't have the faculties necessary to see that perspective? So for me, that's a very important part of decolonial research, allowing for the fact that other perspectives do exist. So to summarize the points that I just made, there is no truly objective researcher. And secondly, since there's never been adequate evidence provided for claims that particular types of social knowledge are universal, the decolonial researcher will be skeptical when those claims are presented to her. So what are some of the principles and practices that uh, researchers can employ to produce work that is decolonial? Now, from my reading across uh, different decolonial, decolonial scholars, I've distilled a set of principles which I think are common to decolonial works. And I detail these in my forthcoming book, Decolonizing International Development, Majority Worldviews. 
there are three principles which are particularly pertinent to doing decolonial research. The principles highlight that decolonization and decoloniality is not just about explicitly challenging external and institutional structures of race-based power, such as how whiteness informs academia and pervades the interactions between nation states and individual citizens. The decolonial is as much about understanding one's internal world as it is about navigating the external world. So what do I mean by this? We talked about how uh, subject position matters. The first principle that I'm going to talk about relates to acknowledging that there is no truly objective researcher. Therefore, perspective matters and diversity matters. That is the principle, perspective matters and diversity matters. We inhabit a planet with an incredible diversity of humans and other life forms. Where we are situated geographically, geopolitically, culturally, our gender, a myriad of other intersecting ways, these all shape the way that we interact with the world. Respecting diversity necessarily means that we respect historical and cultural difference. On a planet as diverse as ours, one cannot generate sustainable solutions or undertake ethical research without multiple diverse voices framing the issues that matter and how they should be addressed. So decolonial researchers employ radical honesty and transparency about their subject position. Now it's common for scholars from the Pacific region. I told you earlier that I am Papua New Guinea and I'm from the Pacific region. It's common for scholars in the Pacific region to emplace themselves. I introduced myself as coming from a matrilineal, matrilineal culture in Papua New Guinea. My scholarly colleagues variously introduced themselves as Maori, Fijian, Samoan. In doing this, we are each acknowledging that our views of the world are partial and they're shaped by our geopolitical location. Very few white scholars particularly emplace themselves. And by not doing so, they are complicit in the myth of objective knowledge production and in upholding whiteness as a norm that needs no explanation. Some white scholars in Australia do emplace themselves, and I'm going to share with you how a white scholar working in Australia in the decolonial space positions herself. I quote Alana Lenton, who says, I wish to acknowledge the Darug people, their elders past and present, and to remind us all that this lecture is taking place on stolen Darug land. I also want to begin my lecture by positioning myself as a European West Asian Jewish woman living on stolen Gadigal land, end quote. Alana Lenton acknowledges that she is a settler colonizer on land that has been stolen from the original inhabitants and that she benefits from this situation. The effect of a white person doing the reflective work to understand her subject position and then voicing that subject position is that it begins to destabilize whiteness as the norm. Culture, ethnicity, historical wrongs that continue as contemporary social marginalization become visible as influences on the knowledge that is being presented and the claims that are being made. The second principle that I want to talk about is that we live in a pluriverse, not a universe. And the pluriverse is a term that we that the, the um, cohort of decolonial scholars that I talked about earlier on, uh, Walter Mignolo, Arturo Escobar, uh, this was coined by them. A decolonial approach rejects the idea of a universe, 
or universal approaches, which imply a single way of being, knowing, and doing, that is the uni. A decolonial approach embraces the idea of a pluriverse, meaning that we understand that there are multiple different and equal ways of being, knowing, and doing. And the third principle is that, a related principle to the previous, humility matters. In a pluriverse of multiple ways of being, knowing, doing, relating, and perceiving, no one individual or group has all the answers to human well-being or cultivating the flourishing of life more generally. In our pluriverse, knowledge is generated in a myriad of ways, not just in universities. There are as many experts outside of universities as there are within them. Who are these people, these other experts? They are people with lived experience of the research question or the policy problem. They include, for example, women in communities across the Pacific who, who negotiate the effects of climate change in their daily lives, but whose voices are absent from the policymaking that directly affects them. Policy which can produce unintended, unintended harmful consequences for these women because it doesn't address their daily concerns. And I recommend reading Linda Tuhiwai-Smith's Decolonizing Methodologies as part of your PhD candidature exploration into other ways of knowing and knowledge creation. I'm going to talk now, I realize that I'm over the half hour, but I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the practices that serve these decolonial principles, and then we can go into a Q&A section. So the first practice that I highlight is a practice of radical self-reflexivity or the principle that perspective matters. Radical honesty and transparency about your subject positionality requires deep self-reflexivity. At IWDA, the International Women's Development Agency where I work, we are in the process of finalizing our inaugural decolonial framework to guide our work. And I'm going to quote, a passage from this framework because I find it particularly pertinent. So I'm starting the quote. Um, Since racist and colonial systems and institutions are created and held in place by many individual people, we each have a duty to do the personal inner work to analyze our relationship with whiteness and coloniality. We must work to understand our own assumption, beliefs, behaviors, and positions in relation to colonialism and racial and knowledge <clears throat> hierarchies. We must ask ourselves how our nationality, our religion, our language, our sexuality, our gender, our racialized identity, our indigeneity, our, con uh, our conceptual frameworks, our practices, etc., have been and continue colonization and coloniality, and how this informs our individual. This is hard work particularly for those who benefit from the systems of oppression that coloniality and whiteness represent. However, doing this work as individuals is necessary in order to reframe our understanding of how to relate to other peoples, other countries and other cultures, and to begin to decolonize ourselves, end quote. This work I put to you is necessary for all decolonial researchers. Or how can you seek to decolonize if you have no understanding of how you yourself are affected by and or complicit in coloniality? 
The second practice that I highlight speaks to the fact of living in a pluriverse. And that is all knowledge claims have to be triangulated. If you are researching the Pacific, for example, you triangulate the scholarly texts from scholars who are indigenous to the Pacific region and scholars who've written about the Pacific from other parts of the world or other subject positions. And you search out other sources as well. You acknowledge that people with lived experience of the matters that you are researching have an expertise that is valuable and you extend to them the mantle of expert, not just research subject or object. So the principles and practices that I've outlined here are by no means exhaustive, uh, but they are, I feel, necessary tools for the decolonial researcher and practitioner to critique and disrupt and dismantle existing power structures and to contribute to offering and shaping a radical and transformative alternative world that, to paraphrase Audre Lorde, does not use the master's tools. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between. Thank you.